This is Guy. This is Emma. Welcome to Achikaro, a podcast about music education for everyone, including people with special needs. Achikaro means a chord that is rolled up in a broken way. Just like Achikaro, we'll discuss all about music education for people with special needs step by step. And this is episode number three History of Special Education. In the last two episodes, we discussed the importance of learning and teaching music to everyone, including people with special needs. Here, we want to take a look at the history of special education in the United States. The truth is, special education was not a thing for a very long time. People with disabilities have not been treated well with respect and dignity. In the States, it's been an uphill battle to ensure that they receive the same education that other students receive. We'll take a look at some of the key events that shaped the current legislation regarding special education in the United States. Yeah, like, like you said, historically speaking, people with special needs have not been treated well. Early Greeks and Romans considered disability as a mark of inferiority because they valued physical and mental perfection. Uh, which there are still absolutely remnants of in modern society. Aristotle once wrote that there should be a law to prevent the rearing of deformed children, end quote, and it was a common practice in ancient Greece to expose children with severe disabilities. To expose means to leave a person out in the weather to die, so. Yikes. Yeah. Religion has also played a huge role in shaping people's perspectives and attitudes towards disabilities. On the one hand, some people saw disability as God's punishment or like the work of evil in the world. For example, Martin Luther considered people with mental disabilities as filled with Satan. In his encounter with a boy who seemed to have symptoms of Prader-Willi syndrome, Martin Luther wrote that the boy is simply a mass of flesh without a soul. The devil is himself their soul, which is disturbing. On the other hand, uh, religious institutions are the ones who started to build orphanages and hospitals and almshouses to to provide help and refuge to people in need, including those with disabilities, and thought of it as God's work. So one example is uh, St. Mary Bethlehem, England's first mental institution, also known as Bedlam. And that is where that comes from, that phrase. It was built in 1247 as a religious order and provided care to people with mental illness. It's interesting that people who are all Christians have different outlooks on disabilities. Like you said, one side thinks of people with disabilities as the, you know, work of evil, which is terrible. And the other sees them as a chance to serve them because in the Bible, you know, Jesus cared for the sick and the blind, and they're trying to follow the footsteps of Jesus. It's interesting, actually, like when you look through um, like society and religion sort of like influencing each other, like they have very, what's that word? I think a symbiotic relationship where sometimes uh, the like, uh, like we were talking about where uh, the church is like the one 
doing social justice work. Um, and then, but then there are other times when the church is racing to catch up to society. And it, it's so interesting the way those two things kind of like ebb and flow and, and work together and sometimes not together. Oh yeah, for sure. I think we're going to see more of that relationship in the following examples. Over time, people's outlook on disabilities also evolved and the Renaissance period played a role in this quote-unquote evolution. During the Renaissance, which was about the like 1300s in Italy, people started to value the arts, science, and they began to see disabilities from more of a medical and a scientific perspective. Something to be fixed and to be cured. Like you said, religion was still influential even in this period. And many hospitals and almshouses were built with a deep religious motivation. But the general attitude shifted gradually from like, oh, disabilities are some kind of a divine intervention to what are they? And how can we care for these people? And if I if I may jump in again, um, it's so interesting because there are so many Renaissance scientists who were, in fact, church members <laughs> um, like Galileo famously was huge devout Christian. And he was he was doing the the uh, astronomy work that he was doing, like in the name of Christianity. Um, and so this is like yet again, like one of those places where the, the Christian community which also very much was the scientific community. That that split is a very modern concept. Um, that the the science community, which was also the church community, was now looking at it in a more holistic way. But like like you're saying, it's just I think it's an I think it's important to say that the science community and the church community were pretty much the same thing. Oh, definitely. I think their social circles overlapped. In fact, that's an interesting point because. If you think about the Renaissance painters like uh, Raphael and Leonardo da Vinci, they made lots of religious paintings, like the crucifixion or something about, you know, Virgin Mary and Jesus. Maybe the word science is not the right one, but if you look at their approach to painting, they pursued precision and realism because before their time, I remember seeing um, lots of paintings in this era and before. Many artists would draw objects like out of proportion. Like people would be like the same size as the mountains in the back or as tall as the building. But painters during the Renaissance made objects look for look more real and precise. Like they drew them, you know, in in proportion and consider kind of where the light is coming from and so anyways so yes uh we see that people in the church community were very much like you know like you said the science community as you mentioned um even though they may not be as sciencey as the galileo was they were at least becoming more realistic and i would say that it's more like scientific as you said before Religious groups were the ones that built institutions for people with disabilities. But later on, the state and the government started to build them or manage them. For example, in the late 16th century, 
Queen Elizabeth of England made the Parliament pass laws, which prompted the government to provide care for the poor and the disadvantaged, including, again, people with disabilities. Moving on, in France, the French Revolution took place uh, in 1789. This movement essentially called for the need to recognize inherent values and dignity in all human beings, regardless, regardless of wealth and societal positions. During this period, there was a psychiatrist named Philippe Pinel. Please pardon my French. Um, so he was one of the first people to say that mental disability is a disease caused by biological and or social factors, not a sin and not something demonic. So this French psychiatrist advocated the humane and moral treatment of people with disabilities. Again, pardon my French. He worked at Bissiter Hospital and later at Salpatier. Um, he removed, so there he removed the chains from patients who were kept in the dungeons and tried to get to know them personally through conversations and the history of their mental disabilities. So he really made a new, I guess, chapter in the history of mental disabilities and the way he treats patients. He's often now referred to as the father of modern psychiatry. I think this is probably the biggest step so far in the story, like the, the, the largest turn. Um, like when you were talking about Queen Elizabeth, um, having parliament pass laws i mean the church was the law structure That's so true. yeah so like it was still a very like people do not come first uh situation and so if people are already lower on the list than whatever like god is being served then they're going to then hierarchy the people um and then the the french revolution comes along and they say you know no people first human centric um and what I just love about France, and this is somebody who was like reared a Christian, um, France has like laws written in that go back to the revolution that say no religion, please. Um, like you cannot, yeah. like, yeah. Um, and it's interesting that this would all happen at the same time, that, that it's almost, I almost feel bad for Christianity that, that the, the most humane treatment of people at like, so, uh, historically had to come at a time when they said, no more religion, please. Um, let's, let's be humanists. Um, I mean, however, whatever gets the job done, I just, it's a, it's a bummer that the church has the record that it has and that somebody from the, the French revolution had to be the thing to say, no, you know what? No, let's let's let people be people. Let's treat people like people. Oh yeah, still really unfortunate that it took this long to recognize or even start treating people humanely. Um, I may go off on a tangent here, but I want to point out that people with disabilities had not really held power, at least to my knowledge. Like. I don't know, maybe there is some historical figure out there, but given how horribly these people have been treated, they probably didn't have a chance to be a you know public figure with power. 
I wonder if there was like there was anyone like that. I mean, most certainly. Um, I mean, most modernly presidents, but also um, like there's always like the rumor that something was wrong with Napoleon that he like was hiding his hand in his jacket all the time. Um, but but I think they can do it in a larger way. The reason that we don't have more examples of that is because like royal families and other kinds of like power establishments probably hid or removed those people and put more healthy, powerful, you know, might is right sort of people in the front, um, which kind of it, it's it's so interesting, like the way. So it's interesting how attitudes towards disabilities changed over time and how all of these historical events shaped them. Um, and it's interesting that there are echoes of the things we've already said, for better or worse, in modern thoughts and opinion and in modern legislature even. Um, again, it's a bummer, but it it's so telling to just look back and say, oh, well, that's why. <laughs> yeah, if people in power had empathy for people with disabilities, and I think the, you know, the whole history of disabilities and special education would, prob would probably be super different now. But I guess um, because these people have not been visible to the public, again, they were not given the same opportunity, you know, no representation and- 2000 years of a lack of representation is playing out. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So representation matters hopefully we see more of that in the future but this entire conversation so far has been a western christian conversation um and i mean just because we happen to live in a western society but it would be fascinating to see how these trends historically played out in other places Ooh, we can definitely cover that in other episodes absolutely absolutely never gonna run out of topics so we've been talking um, at length now about the way history and events like have sh history and historical powerful figures have shaped things. Um, so luckily it's happened, you know, gradually progressively um, in the correct direction. Eventually schools have been established to train and educate people with disabilities. So in the mid-1800s, uh, training schools for children with disabilities were built in Germany, England, and Switzerland. And then eventually, <laughs> we get to the United States. It's not 100% the United States' fault. It's the baby of the family. But um, in the United States, similar social changes took place. So in 1817, American School for the Deaf was built in Connecticut. And this was the first school in the United States for the deaf. In fact, uh, this is the first school for children with disabilities in the Western world. And I guess the word school in that case and not just like training campus. Um, oh, I think that includes training schools. So the school for the deaf was built in 1817. And then the training schools like you mentioned in Europe were built in like the mid 1800s. So well after 1817 so i think i think that's right like it's a it's the first school in the western world i see i see okay um so we didn't actually come second we actually did something first good for us for a second um we'll take the wins where we can get them so the american school for the deaf was built 
in Connecticut in 1817, and that was the first uh, school for children with disabilities in the Western world. Thomas, uh, I think it's Gallaudet, um, because that's how they pronounce the, the college now, built the school because he believed that it was a moral and spiritual responsibility to educate the disabled. So again, we see um, like a combination of, um, of religious and social justice like coming together. And I looked him up briefly, and he apparently studied at Andover Theological Seminary. There you go. Yup. So I don't know if he was necessarily Christian, but his mission to build a school definitely involved some religious motivation. Absolutely. Um, and this is a complete aside. Uh, there is a show that you can stream called Deaf You that uh, follows the lives of college students who go to Gallaudet. Oh, right. So he's the one who built that school. Yes, he did. Um, and the school still provides a ridiculously high, uh, a high level of education in just a wonderful, it's fascinating. Um, so anyway, I, I, on the side, suggest everyone watch that show. Um, in 1829, Samuel Gridley Howe built uh, the New England Asylum for the Blind, which later became the Perkins School for the Blind. He also built the Massachusetts School for forgive my language, it was the language of the time, idiotic and feeble-minded youth in 1848. These terms are not appropriate, but these are the words that people used back then. Despite Howe's good intention for people with special needs, not everyone was on board to make education equitable for them. In 1857, just a couple years after, uh, the governor, Henry Gardner, vetoed a bill for funding this school because he thought that Quote, educating 15 idiotic children boards on the ridiculous, end quote. I think this is one of the many examples that made the entire progress just slow and even regressive. I sometimes think, like, how is it possible that there are people like Governor Garner who has this kind of thoughts? And what was it like to live back then that it's possible to, you know, again, think that teaching them would be ridiculous? Unfortunately, people like Howie and Gallaudet advocated their students and they kept fighting for them, even though they faced um, they faced people who did not agree with their mission. But guess what? The Perkins School for the Blind is still here in Massachusetts. Yeah, so good prevails as it as it should and as it does. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, which is like a message I wanted to hear right this second, um, because as you were talking about um how progress is made slowly and there's always going to be somebody who thinks they're doing the right thing and is is fighting back against what you think is the right thing mm -hmm. i was just like she's describing the last 10 years of like our lives <laughs> um and just because that because you know history repeats itself that's the reason we're looking back mm -hmm. um and so I, I am glad we were like yep nope perkins is still here because in the end like the the good thing that needs to happen will happen mm -hmm. so i'm so glad that we said that yep yeah this is why you learn history this is a very important episode to be doing i think so too i mean we gotta learn how we got here and how not to make the same mistakes okay moving on so a lot of the positive changes and movements start small and they also require the dedication and hard work. In 1896, the first public school special education classes were offered in Rhode Island. And by 1923, 
almost 34,000 students attended these classes, which tells me that, oh my goodness, there had been so many students with disabilities in that community in Rhode Island or beyond who hadn't received education throughout their lives. Like, until this very moment, the first special education class was given. I don't know, it just like kind of blows my mind. Like, it's, there were 34,000 students who were there as part of the community, but they didn't have received, they didn't receive the right um, education. And this reminds me of like, how, like in the last decade or so, there has been an increase in the number of autism spectrum disorder diagnosis. And people, some people interpreted this data as, oh, more people are getting autistic. The truth is more people have reached out for help and received the proper diagnosis. It's not that the number suddenly went up, or I should say, it's not that more people suddenly became autistic. You know, these people have always been in our community. And in this example of Rhode Island, it's been the society's fault for not providing proper education for its own people. And now that we've looked over this history, it, it was the pattern that was set for them. Uh, like you were saying, like, you don't know how, how you could really judge these people because, you know, if you lived in that time, how would you feel? If all of society and and authority again authority figures were were dictating that this is it's okay to feel this way it is good to feel this way and we are going to legislate this way, um, like of of course uh, that's going to be the case. Um, what did you say that made me say that? Oh, that those people were always there. Um, yeah. <laughs> and right and so right of of course they were you know being put in the back room before because you're going to lead with strength because we decided what strength looked like and now that we're broadening the definition of what it means to be human and now that we are discovering empathy for the first time in 1800 years or more then um yeah so now we could get to have these kinds of revelations yeah absolutely and back to how people kept fighting for special education it was also the parents of children with disabilities who tirelessly fought for their kids' education. In Ohio, Cuyahoga County Council for the Retarded Child, again, that was the word that they used back then, was formed in 1933 by parents of children with developmental disabilities who have been excluded from public schools. This council started out as a small group and a meeting at home, but this grassroots group led to the establishment of 38 organizations across the states. Again, it's, you know, parents' dedication and their persistent advocacy for their children laid the foundation for special education in the U.S. public school system. Now, speaking of parents, I just wanted to bring this up. Um, I'm sure you know the term refrigerator mother. Uh, this is this word is coined by a psychiatrist, Dr. Kanner. He pretty much made this term to describe the mothers of autistic children. He essentially blamed their cold parenting style 
for the kids autism, even though the parents were caring and looking for help um, to find to understand their autistic kids. And of course, this is debunked. It's not the parents fault for autism. So yeah, when I learned about this, I was like, dude, like, no, the parents are trying their best to take care of their children and understand autism. Now, like here reading about the parents of Cuyahoga County Council, it's heartwarming to know that the parents are the best advocates for their for their kids. And without their help, their voices wouldn't have been heard and there wouldn't be schools for these uh, kids with special needs. And it's also a shame that the society didn't provide this service for the children. It really speaks to uh, when you first brought up the concept of empathy um, and not having it exist in society enough. Um, And I mean, nobody can empathize more with a child than their own parent like who knows them better Mm. um who's going to love them more who's you know um and so this is just a a fantastic um case for that like the empathy the empathy argument Mm -hmm. um that that's what this really like tracing empathy through history (laughs) or the lack thereof Mm -hmm. if anything maybe this this pot this episode should be called like the history of empathy um Mm. because it just keeps coming back, man. Yeah. Um, and it turns out to be the driving force of caring about people. Yeah. <laughs> and getting them what they need. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. Speaking of, um, just that we're, we're talking about empathy and caring about people. And the next topic in the outline is eugenics. So I, I yeah. Um, well, you, we were saying earlier that for every step that we take forward, somebody is ready to disagree with what you think is good and insert their own good and Mm -hmm. thank goodness uh progress prevails but uh certainly lots of movements have been taking place for special education but there's also a dark side of history the eugenics movement has made the progress towards special education regressive in the early 20th century so uh despite the fact that uh parents were doing all of this wonderful work in 1933 in 1909, California passed the law that permits the sterilization of, quote, undesirables, unquote. In 1927, the Supreme Court case Buck v. Bell permitted sterilization of the intellectually disabled. Justice Holmes argued that, quote, three generations of imbeciles are enough, period. So this happened less than a century ago. Uh, we have couple more years to claim that um and this has been cited as uh, rightfully so one of the worst supreme court decisions of all time Mm -hmm. um but beings as we did this slightly out of order thank goodness there's hope that when this happened every parent revolted and um the the thing that we saw happen in ohio the grassroots movement um thank goodness it sprung up because it like now now that I'm looking at the timeline this way, of course that's what happened. In 1927, uh, Buck versus Bell just pulls out the rug from underneath them um, and like literally threatens their lives and the continuation of their families. And so in 1933, no more of this. No, thank you. We're going to do something about it. Mm-hmm. I will say that it is fascinating that what is clearly a medical 
decision is being made by somebody who is definitely not a doctor mm. um and i i wonder we keep because we a lot of this conversation through history has been like moral virtue versus what science says and the marriage and butting heads of those two things and this feels like a moral gut kind of thing not a scientific decision i i wonder how much science was presented to him and how much i just wonder i wonder what the cards that that, that he was working with is all i wonder it's funny that you brought that up because i briefly read about this case on wikipedia and i don't know who exactly presented the evidence but apparently the plaintiff miss buck was not quote-unquote feeble-minded in fact she was put away to hide her rape by i think it was the nephew of either her mother maybe it was like her adopted mother something like that so and also her child was labeled as uh, like imbecile and while she actually defined at school was this a case of them calling her crazy to kind of throw that out and therefore her daughter was also crazy and so this may not even have really been a mental health case at all apparently not because i mean again i don't know the full details but what was obvious is that the evidence was weak i mean but still like whether miss buck was undesirable or not you don't force sterilization onto just a human being which is just compounds the the regression that this truly is because not only are you denying people rights but you are using that like subcategory of humanity to further ostracize it that is just awful like i i am i am grossed out by that oh i know like this is super disgusting yeah there's so many layers of of evil in in there oh my gosh you can feel free to look it up i will this is all i read which was enough for me to decide that this case is just horrible horrible and we can learn that this is another example of how people with power and even the supreme court just further outcast people with disabilities and special needs and that was the early 1900s. Ah, let's move on to something a little brighter. All right. Well, so mid-1900s, we're talking 1954, significant social change took place. I'm ready for a happy story now. The civil rights movement. Um, one of the, which is not in itself a happy story, it just is continuing to look like it might have us the outcome was good yes in this particular instance in this particular fight one of the landmark supreme court cases that drove the civil rights movement is brown v board of education um which i often forget was topeka kansas uh this court case uh is very important because it stated that racial segregation in public schools is unconstitutional Linda Brown, who was the plaintiff, was a third grade African-American student who was denied access to a nearly white only public school near her house because she was African-American. Racism is obviously still pervasive in the United States, and this court case was decided less than a century ago. So although this court case decision was initially about racial inequality, it absolutely lays the foundation for the laws that mandate free and appropriate public education for students with disabilities um, because not only can you not segregate people for the color of their skin, but you can't segregate people, 
period. Segregation, bad. Um, so uh, we finally get like kind of out of out of this, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, uh, which is commonly referred to as the IDEA, uh, which happens to in 1975. Yeah. So the um, IDEA is truly the cornerstone of special education in public schools in the U.S. It was initially called the Education for All Handicapped Children Act, but the name was changed into Individuals with Disabilities Education Act in 1990 because the word handicapped was not appropriate. You'll recognize that a lot of these words uh, that were used before have changed over time. Like, I mean, even the word disabilities really isn't the perfect word, but we that's what we have today. So yes, so the name was changed into IDEA in 1990. In fact, we're going to discuss the details of the IDEA in our next episode. There are like six pillars of IDEA and we'll talk about each principle and how it's understood and applied in music classes. So with IDEA in 1975, more laws were passed for people with disabilities. For example, Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act in 1973 was passed. This essentially bans discrimination against people with special needs in programs that receive federal funding. In 1990, the Congress passed the Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA, that bans discrimination against people with disabilities in all aspects of public life, like jobs, transportations, places that are open to the general public. So these words were passed to ensure that individuals with disabilities have the same rights and opportunities like everyone else. So I gotta say, I am wildly excited um, about the next episode and talking about the IDEA. Um, it's a lot of what my thesis is about. Um, I have a ton to say about, um, you know, it, and it falls right in line with the theme of making a lot of progress, not enough progress. We're still working on progress. Um, and I am really absolutely fascinated to talk about the six pillars and how they're understood and applied in classes because this is a music education podcast. Um, and just how never uh, music comes up <laughs> in the legislation um, and whether or not any of it actually applies to music education in schools. Um, I mean, that's a great point because, okay, so far we talked about how society's perception and treatment of people with disabilities have changed over time and people started to you know, advocate for their education. And now here we are, there are laws like IDEA that mandate public schools to provide special education. And as you've mentioned, the problem is that the legislation barely mentions anything about music. It does not guarantee that, you know, these students will have access to quality music education. Um, I think one of the reasons is that STEM is heavily focused in the current education system. The This law is really more in my opinion, is concerned about preparing students with special needs to be, you know, productive members or citizens of the United States, like be good at math and science. 
those those two. <laughs> yep. So yeah, so given the historical background we just went over and where we are now in terms of what kinds of laws and policies policies that are out there. Now looking at the future, like I hope that we see progress in making music education for people with special needs accessible and affordable. I think that's happening all the time, every day. It's just not legislated, um, which is so so. It's it's not like legally protected or or guaranteed, but it it is happening, um, which is like a bright spot there. And the other comment I wanted to make was uh, that the whole thing reminds me of the theme of positions of power again. Um, if we, if music educators, if special educators and music educators are not, ha- don't have a seat at the same table, um, at the right table, who are writing the laws, writing the revisions, t- reading the comments, um, and all of that, then progress is not going to be made. So either we have to worm our way up into positions of power or positions of power need to open their ears and add more seats to the table. Mm-hmm. Based on what you said, I want to make another analogy. Remember how the parents in Ohio made the Cuyahoga County Council and then advocated for their kids' education and how that grassroots movement led to essentially establishment of IDA? Like, We want to see the same progress in music education, progress in music classes to actual laws that protect funding and resources for special music education. So yeah, music educators or parents or anyone out there that who who cares about this, uh, keep fighting for your students. Absolutely to really tie all the ends together in in a neat little bow the themes that have re i mean maybe i forced them i don't know but the themes that have kept emerging that of empathy that of power um that of humanism and humanity i think if we bring those things together that we introduce empathy to power and power to empathy that there's a great opportunity for for true progressive change thanks again for listening to our podcast if you have any thoughts comments questions or ideas please reach out to us at achicado.musiced at gmail.com achicado is a big word so we'll spell it it's in the title and come back for the next episode